You're listening to the podcast, Do You Know Who I Am? I'm your host, Patty Lane. Everyone has a story to tell if you're willing to listen. Some of those stories take us to a moment in time that shapes someone's future. And like today's segment, it also shaped history. Let's get started with a trip back in time to the 1970s before personal computers and the internet, a time when the cellular phone revolution was just getting started. Those who think getting a car phone is not for them, whatever the reason, haven't kept up with the booming industry of cellular radio telephones. The very first cellular phones were both car phones and portable phones, but the car phone it cost in excess of $3,000, and the portable phone was $4,000. This revolution in communications could make it possible for more and more people to have a phone in their car, or even one that travels with you. We knew back in those days that the only way to go was portable, we, and, and that someday everybody would have one. We had a joke we told that uh, someday when you were born, you would be assigned a telephone number, and if you didn't answer the phone, you had died. And guess what? It's pretty much come out that way. Eventually, seeing people using cellular phones may seem as commonplace as someone checking time on an electronic watch, figuring on an electronic calculator, or programming on an electronic computer. Industry watchers say there are only a few thousand cellular phones in use right now, but that number is expected to grow considerably within the next few years during the cellular revolution. There are now more cell phones in the world, more cell phone subscriptions in the world than there are people. That's Martin Cooper, or Marty as he likes to be called. He's known as the father of the cellular phone, a technology that was just taking off in the 1970s, and Marty was a big part of that. He led the team at Motorola that built the first mobile cell phone, and he also made the first call on that mobile phone. That call was to his competitor. Those early models, you may remember them, they were called brick phones. They weighed in at about two pounds. Can you imagine walking down the street holding a two-pound phone up to your ear today? Well, we have come a long way. And Marty believes there's still much more potential for today's cell phone, beyond making calls, texting, or playing games. In our conversation, he tells us how the technology for mobile phones came about, what it was like making that first call, and what he sees for the future of cellular technology. The genesis of the vision of the cell phone was that we at Motorola were in the two-way radio business, and for many years, that business was two-way radios in cars. So we served the police, fire department, people trying to run companies. And that's when, when we, as soon as we could build a portable phone, as soon as the technology existed, we tried that out. And sure enough, people just latched onto it. There were businesses that could not operate without people running around holding personal two-way radios in their hands. And that's where we realized that personal communications has to be with a device that you can carry with you and that's an extension of you. My name is Martin Cooper. I live in Del Mar, California. I have spent my entire life in the wireless industry and I continue to do that in lots of different ways. In 1973, I conceived of and developed the very first personal portable cellular telephone. The, the reason my colleagues and I built 
that first mobile phone it was not because we wanted to prove that you could make a phone like that. We knew that that was the case. What we were concerned about is that the concept of cellular telephones was developed by Bell Laboratories, part of AT&T, the old AT&T, the monopoly AT&T, and they were asking the FCC, our Federal Communications Commission, for permission to be a monopoly providing cellular service. And their vision of cellular service was car telephones. I had been convinced for years before that that if communications has got to be personal, it has to be portable. You have to be able to carry it with you and have it be a part of you. And here they were after trapping us with that copper wire in our homes and offices for over 100 years, and they were now going to trap us in our cars if we wanted to communicate. And that didn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, and we heard uh, in uh, 1972, after years of negotiations and, and uh, discussions, that the FCC was about to make a decision. And if they made the wrong decision, not only would the public not be served properly, but uh, we would have possibly lost our two-way radio business. And I was at Motorola at the time, and that was very important business to Motorola. Uh, and so uh, we decided that the way to get the attention of our politicians and our decision makers in Washington was to actually demonstrate to them two things. One is that personal communications has to be with a personal telephone, something that's part of you. And the second was that there are other people than the Bell system, others than AT&T, that could do this. And we did that. We, uh, I engaged uh, uh, all of the smart people at our company. Uh, they created not only a handheld telephone, but the system that made that work, which was quite complex. Uh, we took that system and phone to New York demonstrated it there, then went out to Washington where we showed it to all the politicians uh, and uh, regulators. And uh, guess what? Uh, we won. And, and isn't the public lucky that we did? Tell me, uh, bring me back a little bit about what that first phone call was like for you and who you made it to. Did you, first of all, did you think it would work? Well, as a matter of fact, that was the only thing I thought about. You know, remember now that uh, there were only two of these phones uh, in existence, and the phone is extraordinarily complex. It's all hand-wired with many thousands of parts. A modern cell phone has only about 100 parts in it uh, and, and does uh, many, many more things. But this was ancient technology. Uh, most of these things are individual transistors, not big integrated circuits. So. Uh, I was out on the streets of New York with a reporter, like yourself, uh, and incidentally, we were supposed to be on the Today Show that, that morning, uh, but somehow uh, some event had occurred that bumped us, which is not uncommon in, in that world, and so our PR department, uh, in a panic, found some reporter that would interview me on the street, and it was our, the first time we'd publicly uh, shown that uh, phone. Uh, and I just out of thin air, it occurred to me, why don't I give Joel Engel a call and needle him? 
what was incredible over here, this guy was an executive uh, running a major program in the, for the Bell System, and he answered the phone. No, not his secretary. So uh, I, as I recollect, said, uh, Joel, uh, this is Marty Cooper. Hi, Marty. Uh, I'm calling you on a cell phone, but a real cell phone, a personal, handheld, portable cell phone. Silence on the other end of the line. I, I imagine he was gritting his teeth, but he was polite. We finished our conversation, uh, and uh, to this day, uh, Joel doesn't remember that call, and, and I guess I don't blame him. He was your competitor. Well, Joel, uh, even today, uh, uh, claims that he doesn't even use a cell phone. No, uh, so I guess uh, different things for different people. When you were out on the streets in New York with this phone, this prototype that you had made, did people look at you? Did they? I mean, it's New York, so people don't tend to look. Well, you're exactly right. You know, as I walk down the streets of New York, I feel invisible. People don't look at you, but people stopped and stared at us, and uh, it, it was unusual. Remember, there. At, this is 1973, and there were no uh, cordless phones. In fact, there were no personal computers or no, dig no digital cameras. And the internet had not yet been invented. It was invented that year. There was no GPS, no large-scale integrated circuits. You wondered how we ever survived. The cell phone, the biggest contribution of the cell phone to society is productivity. We do get more, become more productive when we have access to communications to other people. And the part that really warms my heart uh, are the fact that uh, in emerging countries, people are using that cell phone to improve their livelihood. And I'll give you an example of a woman in a village, this is a very poor woman in a village in India, uses microfinancing to buy a cell phone. She then makes her cell phone available to people in her village. They might be farmers, they might be fishermen, these farmers will call, they will rent the phone from this woman. They'll call the surrounding villages to find out where they can get the best price for their products. Uh, and this is a win-win-win. Think about that, that this woman ends up making a living. The farmers improve their living status. Uh, and the people in the surrounding villages get better prices and fresher food. Now, you multiply that by millions of villages uh, all over the world and lots of other similar concepts. There is a fellow at the United Nations, a guy named Jeffrey Sachs, that has said that the cell phone uh, is the most powerful influence in improving the lives of poor people in the world that has ever existed. So it, it's that, and, there, and we're talking about people who are texting and talking and listening, not fancy smartphones. So I think we're on the beginning. The, uh, we don't use the smartphone for really important things yet, but that's starting to happen now. And I think that the smartphone uh, is going to evolve. That started to happen already, so it's going to revolutionize education. It's going to revolutionize health care. And the biggest thing that's happening, and it's happening slowly enough so people aren't even noticing it, 
is the ability to collaborate more efficiently. So all of these games that we play, because that's what I call Facebook and Twitter, and, and uh, I mean, you can list uh, all of these uh, applications, uh, which seem so trivial, but they aren't. They're teaching us how to communicate with each other in more efficient and more diverse ways. And when those things, when those capabilities mature, we are going to be a much more efficient society. And what does it mean to be more efficient? What it means uh, is that we produce more with the same amount of work. What does that mean? That people in general become more wealthy. There is the potential, if we keep doing this for a generation or two, that there's a potential to eliminate poverty. And that really is the dream you know, that I have and that other people have as well. You're listening to our interview with Marty Cooper, the man behind the first mobile phone. He goes on to discuss how technology and cell phones might be used in the future. What are you expecting in the next wave? We are learning that if we can measure people and anticipate disease rather than waiting for people to get sick and cure them, that uh, there is the potential to stop disease entirely. Just think about that. The experts in the field tell me that every disease is actionably preventable. So why wait till you get sick to cure it? Why not prevent it? And, but the very often these things happen quickly. And so measuring people, having people wear sensors that may be based upon their genomes, uh, what, what are they susceptible to? And then when you sense that something is happening that's not good in somebody's body, a computer continually analyzes this, and you take a pill or you get some kind of other treatment, and you never get sick in the first place. So the dream is a disease-free society. Now, you know, people will laugh at that. They'll say that's impossible. Well, they said that about the cell phone, too. Uh, and the same thing is uh, true in, uh, in education. I think that we've got a revolution that has already started. Uh, think about your education. When did your education start? Well, let me suggest that it started when you got out of school. Where, where you learn is in the real world. School gives you the tools, it's very important. But uh, why not have our children start their educations uh, out of school uh, in the form of games? When they play games, uh, computer games, just as an example, what, what's the nature of these games? Well, first of all, they are entertaining and interesting. So you don't have to convince a child to do that. They want to do it. They're, this is how they have fun. They're challenging. So their, their brains are continually pressed, but not so much so that uh, they lose interest because games are adaptive. Just think of you take all those attributes and make them educational. Have a game that draws people in, that teaches them, and doesn't teach them one subject, geography, history. The games ought to be integrative, just like our lives are. Uh, if you put all those things together, you end up with 
an, an educational system where people are challenged. And guess what? When you are challenged in that nature, your gr brain actually grows more powerful. And, and so I envision in the future a more powerful society, people, smarter people, assuming that they all have access to this kind of an educational system. Big challenge to society. We don't know how to do that yet, but I think we're gonna learn how. Seeing all that from where you're sitting now, how does that make you feel to know that you're a part of that? Well, I don't know how big a part I am, but it does make me feel good. I'm an optimist. I think the world has been getting better forever. We live longer. We are, uh, as a society, uh, wealthier uh, uh, and healthier. Uh, and I think that's going to keep happening. So there is the potential, as I say, of having a, a disease-free society of highly educated uh, people, none of whom are truly poor. That's a great dream. Uh, I didn't do that by myself. I, well, that first phone took a lot of work by a bunch of my colleagues. Uh, and uh, there are many thousands of people that have created the technology that we now uh, call uh, mobile phones, cellular phones. Uh, but I'm very pleased that I had a small part in all that. You mentioned you're 87 years old and you're still working in this. This is really a, a passion for you still, isn't it? Well, there is. I, had, uh, I can't do very much engineering uh, because that world has changed a lot, but I can keep dreaming. Uh, and so I uh, am uh, on a couple of government committees. I'm on a, an advisory council for our Federal Communications Commission. Uh, I'm on a, on a committee for the uh, Department of Commerce on managing radio spectrum. Uh, I sit on the board of a company uh, that's doing uh, uh, a marvelous uh, wireless thing that allows you to charge your uh, telephone remotely. The company's called Energis, and they have a technology that uh, uh, makes it possible for you to keep your phone charged without ever plugging it in. Just be somewhere, and you get a charge. So, uh, uh, and I'm trying to write a book. Uh, which is really difficult. I've written thousands of uh, articles over my lifetime, uh, but writing a book and having it flow is a whole new challenge. Uh, but uh, there you go. That's, uh, I hope that that helps keep my mind young. How do you want people to remember you and the work that you've done? It's not important that people remember me. It's that, that the uh, small things that I've contributed uh, grow and, uh, and uh, benefit lots of people in the future. Even at 87 years old, the inventor does not appear to be slowing down anytime soon. He's been honored for his work over the years with many awards and has nearly a dozen patents to his name. He tells me his dream is to have wireless access available for everyone. Marty skis and hikes along with his wife, Arlene Harris. She is also in technology. She pioneered the concept behind the first prepaid cell phone and is the inventor of the first cell phone and service dedicated to seniors and those with disabilities. You may have heard of it. It's called the Jitterbug. The power couple continue their work through their company, Dyna LLC. Check back for another episode of Do You Know Who I Am? Remember, everyone has a story to tell if you're willing to listen. Until then, I'm Patty Lane.